Welcome back to Half the Battle. I'm your host as always, Daniel Levy, and today we're going to talk about UFC 297, Sean Strickland versus Drikas Duplessis for the undisputed UFC middleweight championship of the world. And my friends, it's going down this Saturday night live at the Scotiabank Arena in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Interesting because we got a guy like Sean Strickland, as controversial, as outspoken as he is, they put him in Canada and Australia in back-to-back -back fights. They don't even let this guy fight in the United States. Like, let's try as hard as we can to get this guy deported and to get him to say something completely off the wall to get this, this fight canceled, you know? And on the other side, we got Drikas Duplessis, who... It's awkward, but it's violent. This guy makes it work. It doesn't look the prettiest, but geez, when he touches these guys on the chin, anywhere, temple, jaw, wherever it may be, they feel it. Boy, do they feel it. Ask Robert Whitaker off that jab. So this is a very intriguing main event. We have here also the co-main event for the belt, Meyer Bueno Silva taking on Pennington. I can't wait. So my friends, let's get right down to business because in the main event, we got the champ, Sean Strickland, he's 28 and 5, taking on Drikas Duplessis, who's 20 and 2. And currently, they got it. Sean Strickland at minus 139. The comeback on Drikas Duplessis is plus 119. So, hell of a fight for the main event. I mean, these guys already fought in the stands. Now they're going to fight inside the octagon. You'd love to see it. And I mean, listen, Sean Strickland, I gave him the 2023 half the battle fighter of the year. I also gave him the 2023 half the battle upset of the year. So this guy had an incredible year. I mean, that performance he had against Adesanya was an all-timer. He dethroned Izzy. And now he's primed to defend his belt against the very dangerous Drikas Duplessis. You guys already know what Sean Strickland brings to the table. He's a guy, he doesn't even need to do his strength and conditioning or his jiu-jitsu or anything like that. This guy literally just spars. For the majority of his training sessions and that's why he's so comfortable inside the octagon you're going to hear joe rogan talk about how they have this mouthpiece that tests you know how much each fighter gets hit and apparently sean strickland spars the most and gets hit the least so it's very very impressive to say the least and uh you know also for a guy like him he, you know you look at like george st pierre then you look at sean strickland it's polar opposites with the personality uh you know sean strickland uh Man, I was actually kind of surprised to see him crying uh, on, a, on a show, on that Theo Vaughn show. But, you know, what he went through, obviously, that's not a laughing matter. It's just interesting when, you know, you talk about Sean Strickland, who is making fun of everybody for everything, literally. And we're like, okay, cool, no big deal. But when it was his turn to take the heat, all of a sudden, he was like, bro, I'll stab you if you say some shit like that. I was like, whoa. <laughs> whoa. And I heard a podcast recently. I think it might have been my boy Andrew's podcast talking about how if Strickland had a gun there, he would have literally shot Duplessis. And I, I agree with that, man. I was thinking about that. I was like, man, that's scary. So that's why, back to my point, how are you letting this guy fight in Australia and Canada back to back? You know, hey, I don't make the rules, but let's break down this matchup. So Strickland can put out a ridiculous amount of volume. He's got this style where, man, he'll just pop that jab. He'll set up that straight Mix in the left hook, occasional kicks, not too many kicks. He has very good takedown defense. His get-up game is on point. His cardio is ridiculous, and he'll put up the kind of output numbers that we like. So there's a lot to like on the Strickland side. And Duplessis, man, it's so interesting because like I told you at the very beginning, it's awkward, but it's violent, and it's effective. And this guy, it doesn't look like, you know, if you just show a Drickus Duplessis fight to some boxing coach, He'd be like, what the hell? What in God's name? You know what I mean? But like, dude, 
you put them in the octagon and guys that are supposedly more technically sound it's like robert whitaker got embarrassed brad tavares who everyone was saying well if that fight goes the distance if he doesn't catch brad you know brad's gonna outland him and easily win the decision and drickus was the one putting up the kind of numbers in a three-round fight that we like to see over 100 significant strikes so if he doesn't knock you out he's good enough to go the distance he's good enough to put up the kind of output we like and on the topic of output i'm really glad i brought that up because listen if you look at the record books and granted you know the the drickus duplicy sample size is a little bit on the smaller side but he currently holds the record for the most significant strikes landed in middleweight history. And we're talking about a division that was ruled by Anderson Silva. We're talking about a division that had Adesanya, currently Strickland, tons of great fighters. Rich Franklin have come through the middleweight division. And Drikas Duplessis has the highest output at this point. Again, not the biggest sample size, you know, but at least a minimum of five fights. But boy, the way I see them matching up is, I mean, I think Strickland's going to have his openings for sure. It's just when... Is Drickus's turn to return the favor? That's where I see Strickland kind of getting hurt, getting caught. You know, he has been caught before, whether it was the Elizio Zaleski dos Santos fight, whether it was more recently the Pereira fight, you know. And I know that Drickus is a completely different fighter than those two guys, but he's got the goods to change the tide of a fight with one shot. I mean, the way he rocked Whitaker with that jab, and you might say, oh, well, Whitaker's on his way out, this and that, he's past his prime. I, I don't disagree, but like, you know, it's funny. So from my experience, you know, I've sparred with a lot of guys in my time, right? Sparred, not fought, but sparred, right? No, but I sparred with a lot of guys in my time, a lot of heavy hitters. And like, I sparred with this South African once named Philip Botha. Bro, he hit me with a jab, just a jab. And like, your eye starts watering. Your nose is like, whoa. You're like, what? It was like, Russia, like, which one of y'all hit me with that? You know what I mean? Like, bro. South Africans hit different. And Drikas Duplessis, I think that's been proven. And I took him in the spot at plus 125. I put two units on it. Um, I think it should be a pick em. You know, I know a lot of people are saying, well, all Sean has to do is get this extended and he's going to win three, four, and five and do all these things. And I think people are still underestimating Drikas Duplessis. I'm done underestimating this guy. Like, what he did to Whitaker, what he does to all these guys, every time you count him out, like even the Derek Brunson fight, people are going to talk about, oh, you quote-unquote went life and death with Derek Brunson no he did not okay he got into some bad spots against Derek Brunson but to say he went life and death with him I mean only one guy was on the brink of death and it was not Duplessis let's just leave it at that and uh Derek Brunson presents a completely different stylistic challenge than Sean Strickland Derek Brunson wasn't he like a former D1 wrestler or something like that like Sean Strickland's not a D1 wrestler Sean Strickland does not offensively grapple Sean Strickland is going to try to jab you for five straight rounds and I don't think that's a good enough game plan to beat a guy like Drickus Duplessis. Like when you look at Strickland versus Adesanya, Adesanya did get caught early on with that right hand, but Adesanya fought a technical fight with Sean Strickland. Like, you know, you might win that, you might lose that, but I don't recommend fighting a technical fight with Sean Strickland. Drickus Duplessis is not going to fight a technical fight with Sean Strickland. He's going to make it dirty. He's going to get in his face. He's going to hurt him. He's going to roughneck him. He's going to bust him up. And at some point, whether it's landing that shot that changes the tide of the fight or it's that shot that literally puts strickland away i think duplessis is going to have the bigger more impactful moments of this fight and whether it's a knockout submission or decision i see drickus duplessis being the new ufc middleweight champion and bringing that belt back to south africa
co-main event of the evening for the vacant bantamweight title we got raquel rocky pennington she's 15 and 8 taking on myra shitara bueno silva who's 10 and 2 but between you and me she's 11 and 2 because she definitely choked out holly home with that ninja choke and i heard some people talking about how she popped for steroids no she did not she popped for adderall which she literally takes for her add she, t- uh, she stops taking it like a week before the fight and she popped and then they overturned it to a no contest. So people are wondering, well, why is she fighting for a title if it was, a, if it was overturned? It's because she was taking Adderall, which is an ADD medication. Like Adderall will not make you a better fighter. I'm going to tell you that right now. It might make you focus more, but it ain't going to give you that Adderall did not teach her how to do that ninja choke. I'm going to just leave it at that right now. Now, let's talk about these two fighters, and let's tell, let's say what the odds are real quick. So currently, they got it. Mayra Shitara, Bueno Silva, minus 157. The comeback on Rocky Pennington is plus 137. This is a fantastic fight because one thing about Rocky Pennington is she's been paying her dues for so long. She was on one of the original Ultimate Fighter episodes when they first introduced the women to the UFC, and it was... Uh, Ronda Rousey versus Misha Tate actually coaching that season. And that's where Rocky Pennington emerged. And she's always just been a tough fighter. You know, nothing special, but just tough, right? What she's most known for is her boxing for MMA, but she can clinch and she's pretty well-rounded. Just like I said, nothing special, but just tough and experienced, durable, will be there. So you got to respect Rocky Pennington. With Maira Shitara Bueno Silva, I actually think she is special because she brings something that a lot of the women don't and that's that heavy heavy power it's like a dude hits you pretty much and not only that the finishing instinct not just with her hands obviously you guys know about that ninja choke she hit on holly Holm, but it's not just holly Holm that she, that she hit that on you know you watch her contender series fight she hit that ninja choke there too so it's not some coincidence uh this is definitely something that this girl practices in the practice room her leg kicks are devastating. You watch that Marina Moroz fight. I actually bet Marina Moroz at dog odds there, and I was sweating every single second of that fight, and she really chopped down Marina nicely with those leg kicks. It's just she got taken down and neutralized at times in that fight. But the reason I brought up that, uh, that Marina Moroz fight is because I think that weapon that Mayur Shitara Bueno Silva used in the Marina Moroz fight is going to be a very effective weapon in this fight. Reason being, I'm talking about the calf kicks. Reason being, I talked about how Raquel Pennington kind of has that boxing for MMA style. So, you know, with that being said, she's very heavy on that lead foot. She's very stationary. And as a result, I think she's going to be open to those calf kicks. I think the boxing exchanges could be interesting, but I think that Mayur Shitara is going to be landing with bigger power. So whether it's a finish along the way or just landing the harder shots throughout the duration of this fight, I see Mayur Shitara Bueno Silva distinguishing herself from rocky pennington with just when she lands it's going to be impactful when she lands you're going to be like oh shit when she lands she's going to chop down rocky pennington with the calf kick she's going to rock her with the shots upstairs and whether rocky wants to take a sloppy shot into a choke or rocky wants to get picked apart and when i say picked apart i think that rocky is going to be there and is going to exchange it's going to be super tough which is what she is known for but i also think that over time these damaging shots are going to take their toll. I mean, you watch that Amanda Nunes fight. No, I'm not comparing anyone to Amanda Nunes, but I'm just saying we know that Rocky Pennington can be dismantled. You watch that Jermaine Durandamy fight, and you think that the clinch is going to be some big advantage for Rocky Pennington. She can be beaten the clinch too. And I know that Shitara gets pushed up against the fence in a lot of fights, and I expect that to happen here too, but I think she's going to break away. I think there's going to be elbows. I think there's going to be knees. I think there's going to be violence, period, point blank. So I'm picking Mayra Shitara Bueno Silva to become the new 
UFC bantamweight champion, and I'd like to hit it around minus 150. I don't want to be too greedy, but you know, maybe maybe 55. But I haven't played it yet, but I'm looking at minus 150. Let's just see what happens. But um, yeah, I think that Mayur Shitara Bueno Silva is going to bring violence back to the women's bantamweight division. Featured bout in the welterweight division, we got Neil Magny. He's 28 and 11, taking on the Canadian prospect Mike Malat, who's 10 1 and 1. Currently, they got it. Mike Vallot minus 400. The comeback on Neil Magny is plus 300. What am I supposed to do with this minus 400? Look, here's the thing with uh, Mike Vallot. I think he's a very talented prospect. I think he's proven me wrong in a couple spots. I think that he's a lot more impressive than I initially thought, but the jury's still out in terms of I'm not sure what the ceiling is yet for this kid. Like with a lot of prospects, I'm very confident saying, oh, this guy's a future top 10 guy. This guy's a future top five guy. This guy's a future champion. This guy will fight for a belt, whatever the case may be. With Malat, I'm still on the fence. What I am very confident about is that Malat is a dangerous finisher. You look on the feet, he's switching his stances. He's very methodical. He's got heavy kicks. But you shoot a sloppy takedown on a guy like Malat, and his guillotine series is absolutely nasty. And shout out to Mike Malat because, you know, I'm a purple belt. He taught me the high-risk guillotine variation. No, not in person. He didn't come to my gym or anything, but I watched that fight he had with Adam Fuga. And man, I didn't even know about that high wrist variation. I always knew about the high elbow, which Mike Malat does very good as well. But I didn't even know about that high wrist variation. So shout out Mike Malat for showing me that. Um, man, he's nasty, dude. And the thing about Neil Magny, got the most wins in UFC welterweight history. He's long for the weight class. And he's a guy that for some reason, I don't know what it is, but these very dangerous strikers, they fall into this trap where they abandon their striking game plan and then they just run into the clinch with Neil Magny and then they start slowing down dramatically. You saw Robbie Lawler, you saw Lee Jingliang, you see all these guys, Phil Rowe, fall for the same exact trick. I don't understand it. So, you know, here with Mike Malat being minus 400, if he just immediately rushes into the clinch, I think it's because of that, that length and that range of Neil Magny. It's kind of awkward for guys, so they feel more safe in the clinch, but that really wears them down. And then Neil Magny can start, you know, mixing in knees, get a body lock takedown, something like that. So Magny's got a lot of vet tactics at his disposal. But with that being said, with all the footage of him available, you know exactly what his weaknesses are, whether it be his chin, which is, you know, somewhat diminishing. You've seen a lot of the knockout losses along the way, whether it was Lorenz Lark and Santiago Ponzinibbio, even Max Griffin dropping him more recently. And the leg kicks. I know Ian Machado Gary really showed that. He really brought it back to light recently, but that's something that's been going on for a long time. I mean, back to the Lorenz Larkin fight, back to the Santiago Ponzinibbio fight. I mean, one thing about being 6'3 at welterweight is you're going to have chicken legs, and you got chicken legs. These dudes are going to calf kick you. So let's see if Mike Malat comes out here trying to kick legs. Um, the only thing I'm worried about with Malat is he hasn't quite been proven in terms of like fighting at a high pace in like a real back and forth war. He looks amazing as the hammer. He looks fantastic as the hammer. And he might just be the hammer here. I mean, it's minus 400. The odds say he's going to be the hammer. My only question is what happens when Mike Malak gets into a real fight with someone that their spirit is not going to be broken. They're going to be there the entire time. They're going to be in his face. They're going to be giving it back to him. Because even like in that Mickey Gall fight, like the beginning, Mike was fucking Mickey up. The middle part of that fight, uh, Mickey had a little bit of success and then Malak caught him beautiful stuff um but yeah i'm very curious what happens when someone gives it back to them so i'm not going to be laying this minus 400 but i am going to pick him to win i think that you know right now is a good time to catch neil magnet it really is um 
You know, he's been looking worse and worse every single fight. The guy's had a really long career. He's been around the UFC for a long time. But, man, fading him has not been profitable for me long term. It really hasn't. I mean, there's been spots where we've got it right, you know, whether it was the Santiago Ponzinibbio fight or whatnot. But there's been a lot of fights where I've lost a lot of money trying to fade Neil Magny, the Robbie Lawler fight, the Lee Jing Liang fight, the Tony Martin fight, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to just pass on this one. But I'm going to pick Mike Malott to continue his streak and, and show out. But... Let's see exactly what his ceiling is. I, I want to see how he handles this because Neil Magny's a very good measuring stick for up-and-coming prospects. He's going to let us know exactly where they lie in the, in the division, what their ceiling is. So let's see where Mike Malala lies. I'm going to pick him to win this fight. Now, next up in the middleweight division, we've got a matchup between Chris Curtis, who's 30 and 10, taking on Mark andre Barriu, who's 16 and 6. Currently, they got it. Chris Curtis, minus 192, the comeback on Mark andre Baru is plus 167. So this is a spot where I haven't played anything yet, but I'm kind of interested in the underdog. I know a lot of people love Chris Curtis in the spot, but I feel like a lot of people love Chris Curtis in a lot of spots. Like the fans have some kind of uh, love affair with Chris Curtis. Um, I mean, I get it. When he knocks dudes out, it's very violent in the pocket. He's very clean, but that's about the extent of it. Well, I'll say this. His takedown defense has gotten so much better over the years. Like you watch like some of his earlier fights where he used to get grinded at easy like his regional fibers Bilal, his pfl fights against the karamovs like dude like he got grinded out easy and then you watch his fight against rodolfo uh vieira the fight against brendan allen his takedown defense has gotten a lot a lot better but what he's mainly known for is that boxing in the pocket with mark andre barrio he's one of these just durable you know just like hockey enforcer type guys you get up in the clinch with him he's got these nasty uppercuts big knees big elbows at range, I'm a little bit worried because, you know, he is kind of on the slower side. He's a bit on the hittable side. And in the pocket, we know Chris Curtis can crack, but Burial can crack too. And usually when Chris Curtis isn't knocking people out, he's either losing the fight or it's like 50-50, man. Like you watch that Phil Haas fight. Dude, I know all that we remember is that Phil Haas got that. Excuse me. I know that all we remember is that Chris Curtis got that knockout on Phil Haas, but what people often forget to remember or often conveniently leave out is that phil haas was absolutely schooling chris curtis phil haas was like doubling up doubling him up on strikes looking like a future title contender and then he just got caught that chin showed its ugly head again reared its ugly head again and on mark andre has been caught before but chris curtis has been caught too you know whether the chitty fight for mark andre whether it was the ray cooper fight for chris curtis i mean both guys have been caught before so i mean i just see this being an honest fight like for Curtis to cover this price tag, he needs to come out here and starch bear you in that first round. He needs to come out here and put a clinic on him. And Chris Curtis doesn't put clinics on anybody. Chris Curtis usually doesn't do much until he knocks you out or until he loses a decision. That's how it usually tends to go. So if Mark Andre is not getting knocked out here, I think he's a live dog. And I'm actually going to pick him to win this fight, probably by decision. And then you're going to see Chris Curtis reactivate his Twitter account and uh, throw another pity party. Now, next up in the featherweight division, we got a match between Arnold Almighty Allen. He's 19 and 2. He's taking on Movsar Evloyev, who's 17 and 0. And man, those are like boxing records. 19 and 2 versus 17 and 0. Two top 10 guys. Amazing stuff. And currently they got it. Movsar Evloyev minus 195. The comeback on Arnold Allen is plus 170. So I took uh Movsar Evloyev here at minus 175 a few days ago. I played it to win two units. Now, longtime listeners of the show know. I am a huge Arnold Allen fan. I've been betting on Arnold Allen in a majority of his fights. The guy's very profitable. I think he's one of the best fighters 
in the featherweight division. I just think this is a tough matchup for him. I don't think that Movsar Evloyev is just going to come out here and starch Arnold Allen or, you know, 30, 25 him or anything. But I do think that he's going to win a comfortable decision. The reason is this. So I think that Arnold Allen, man, he, he brings so many unique things to the table. For example, from that southpaw stance, I love that he, ha that he does that outside calf kick to orthodox opponents. Like usually when it's a southpaw versus orthodox, the southpaw guy will be throwing a lot of body kicks, that liver kick, you know, with the rear leg. But this dude, Arnold Allen, he uses his front leg, his lead leg, and he goes to the calf of orthodox opponents. I love it. I love his hands. He's got very opportunistic submissions. His takedown defense is on point. His getup game is on point. I like everything about Arnold Allen. The thing with Movsar Evloyev is not only can he put up the kind of takedown numbers we like, I mean, whether it's 9, 10, whatever the case may be, he's relentless. He does not get discouraged if you stuff the first few. In fact, he kind of wants you to stuff the first few to kind of get mesmerized a bit. And don't be surprised if Movsar tries to stand with Arnold for a little bit to get him confused, to make him, you know, think to take down a couple times, then start to strike with him a bit, make him think, oh, shit, we're striking now, then level change. And I think, you know, Arnold is going to stuff a few. I think Arnold might get back up from a few. But the thing about it is Movsar is going to keep trying. Movsar doesn't get discouraged. Movsar, and then by the time that, you know, that mid-second round comes through, that's where I think Movsar is going to finally start to kind of neutralize a guy like Arnold Allen. That's where those hip escapes from Arnold are going to be a little bit tougher to come by. That wall walking is going to be a little bit tougher. You watch that fight with Sodiq Youssef and Arnold Allen. Fantastic fight between, at the time, two emerging prospects, now two contenders. And Arnold Allen visibly fatigued at, down the stretch. Reason being was there was a lot of clinch work. There was a lot of physicality in that fight. And I think that Movsar Evloyev is also going to put Arnold Allen in that clinch, eventually be able to take him down. And you watch that fight between Movsar Evloyev and Hakim Dawadu, and there's this big misconception that Movsar gassed so bad and got owned in round three or something, and that's just such bullshit. It's like Movsar literally 10-8-ed Hakim the first two rounds and did whatever he wanted. So the third round comes through, and he actually ate two punches. Oh, my God, he got hit twice in a fight. Let's let's lay out the tombstone for him right away, right? Like. So people are so used to this guy not getting hit that when he actually does get hit, they kind of overblow it a bit. I mean, because when you go back and you watch that third round with him and Hakeem Dawadu, by the end of that third round, he went back to his disgusting body lock takedown and he was mauling Hakeem Dawadu. So just because Hakeem actually landed a punch in round three does not mean that Movsar was, oh man, if there were two more rounds, Movsar would have got finished. Like, yeah, right, dude. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, listen, I, I, I see this being a very honest fight, but I think that Movsar's relentlessness, like I said, that seven-minute mark, that's where I really think he's going to pull away and uh, grind out Arnold Allen and for sure take two of these rounds, if not all three. So, uh, I like Movsar of Loyev here. I took him at minus 175 to win two units, and I think Arnold Allen will be back. It's just a tough matchup for him. Now, next up in the Bantamweight division, we got the featured prelim between Brad Katona. He's 13-2. and two. He's taking on Garrett Armfield, who's 9-3. and three. And currently, they got it. Brad Katona, minus 185. The comeback on Garrett Armfield is plus 160. This is a really good fight because, like, Brad Katona is one of these guys that very underrated because he doesn't have the most exciting style. And what's interesting is that we say that, and we've been saying that for years, but his last fight against Cody Gibson, he finally put on the kind of fights that the fans want to see. I mean, that was fight of the night for sure on a very stacked card, the same night that O'Malley knocked out Sterling. You know, everybody loves that knockout. I know I do. Um, 
But yeah, Bracketona and Cody Gibson, they went to war. And you guys already know that on tough Bracketona, he won the ultimate fighter twice. He choked out Bryce Mitchell. He beat Kyler Phillips. He beat Timor Valley. Like he's beat some really good guys. And with Garrett Arnfield, I think he's a good prospect, man. I actually bet him in his last fight against Kazama, knocked him out in the first round, did exactly what he was supposed to do. And even in these fights that he's lost, like maybe not the Ronnie Lawrence fight. That was so long ago. The kid was only two and zero. Let's not even talk about that. But like the Mateo Vogel fight, for example, where uh Garrett got choked out in round two. Like in round one, like he was doing really, really well. Like you watched that fight he had against uh Sharky Slider, Mark Slider, I think the kid's name is, right? Um, and you you see that's a split decision. You're like, why the hell is this guy going to a split decision with some random six and four guy? Bro, go rewatch that fight. That shit was no split decision. That shit was clear as day. 30-27 Garrett Armfield. And Garrett Armfield, one thing about him, he's got very heavy hands. He's got decent wrestling as well. The only kind of criticism I have for him is that he tends to slow down in high-paced fights. So that's what I'm worried about here. Uh, Katona potentially taking over that second and third round, winning a decision, or possibly getting a submission along the way. The thing about Katona is he's been around the game a very, very long time. And at some point, this guy is going to be on the decline. I don't know when it's going to be. You know, he is at the 10-year mark of his career. Like I said, been around the game a very long time. That last fight, although we love to see it aesthetically speaking, that was very uncharacteristic for Katona. For Katona. Katona usually doesn't bang. Katona usually doesn't take a lot of damage. So it'll be interesting to see how he rebounds from that because one thing about Armfield, Armfield can crack. So I would not be surprised if Armfield knocked out Katona. I would just be surprised if Armfield was able to win a decision. I guess for him to win a decision, he'd have to get some knockdowns along the way. But it seems like Katona is one of those smart guys that can – just really kind of slow down the more inexperienced guy and grind away as the fight progresses. But you never know, especially with Katona coming off that serious war, Armfield, a guy who's making improvements every single fight, training under Trey Ogden, and he feels like he's really dialed in. So who knows? But uh, I'm going to lean Katona a little bit, but I'd I'd love to see Garrett Armfield win. I'm a bigger fan of his style, um, and uh, it would be cool to see him get this win. I'm going to pick Katona, but I hope I'm wrong about that. Now, next up in the featherweight division, we got a banger between Charles Jordan. He's 15-6-1, taking on Sean Woodson, who's 10-1-1. Currently, they got it. Charles Jordan, minus 185. The comeback on Sean Woodson is plus 160. I mean, this is a hell of a fight again, man. Charles Jordan brings the absolute violence that we love to see and this is one of those guys that you know we were talking about it like with josh van or with like peter yan or whatever the case may be where like or chito vera where like these guys will take off round one make their reads and like come second third round these guys are like mythical creatures jordan in that third round is so nasty man he's long for the weight class but he's not going to be the long guy here the long guy here is going to be sean woodson who's listen to this for a 145er you don't often see this he's six foot two with a 78 inch reach I mean, you round it up. This man is six foot three with an 80 inch reach. He's got basically a 10 inch reach advantage in this spot. So Jordan's no longer the longer guy in the spot. And what's interesting about Jordan, you know, he takes that first round to kind of make his reads. He's kind of an outside kicker. But man, like you show him any kind of weakness, and boy, will he tee off on you. He gets mean in there. The thing about Woodson is, Woodson's another guy that likes to build into the fight. Woodson's another guy that the longer the fight goes, the better it plays out for him. And what I mean by that is, listen, I know both guys got choked out by Julian Arosa in round three after both guys dropped him early in the fight, but that's just how it goes with Arosa. You already know Arosa is one of those guys where like 
anybody can knock him out in round one, but the guys that don't finish him, they end up usually losing the fight. And that's what happened to both, uh, excuse me, both Woodson and Jordan. But speaking of the topic of building into fights, because that's really important, because that's what Jordan loves to do. Everyone talks about round three Jordan, right? Sean Woodson does the same thing. Like you watch Sean Woodson's fight with Luis Saldana, where it actually should have been a first round knockout win for Luis Saldana. But listen to this. The fact that Sean Woodson was able to turn that into a draw, like, dude. Your spirit will not be broken, huh, kid? Like, that's very, very impressive, man. The fact that after getting knocked out in that first round, his best round is that third round. He's able to turn that into a draw and win the third round. Very, very impressive. And I know people are giving him shit. Oh, Luis Saldana, this and that. Listen, Luis Saldana is a motherfucker for those first seven minutes. He just tends to gas out and then, you know, people take over. But those first seven minutes or so, Luis Saldana is a problem. Like, Luis Saldana is a very dangerous fighter, man, for those first seven minutes. In every contest, it's just he tends to gas out, and that happened again there. But, man, Woodson, I got to give him credit. His toughness was on full display. Then he bounces back in that Dennis Bazooka fight, easily 30-27. I know some people were saying Bazooka had some success in certain exchanges, this and that. I mean, that was like a last-minute replacement. He was getting ready to fight someone else. Let me tell you exactly who he, he was getting ready to fight. So Woodson was supposed to fight. Holy shit. So he was supposed to fight like three different opponents and they all literally canceled on him. And then they're just like, all right, uh, Dennis Bazooka, we didn't want you coming off a win off contender series, but we're desperate to get this guy an opponent. So we're going to call you in, right? And Woodson kind of did his thing there. And Charles Jordan, we talk about his outside kicking game. I love his guillotine game too. You saw that fight with Ramos. You saw that fight with Lando. His guillotine game is on point. Um, Neither guy has the best takedown defense in the world. We know this. And I just expect these guys to stand and bang for three straight rounds or until one man falls. So I see the argument for it being a dogger pass situation. I'm going to lean a little bit towards the Canadian, though. I think that, you know, if this is a 50-50 fight that the Canadian judges might give it to him. But that being said, man, a 50-50 fight and you got a minus 185, uh, you know, taking on a plus 160. Should probably go with the dog in that spot, but is it really a 50-50 fight? That, that's the big question here. I, I just see it being honest, 29-28 either way. Possibly a finish along the way, but I got to think of it in terms of like, if I don't see an obvious finish, what's the most likely result if this goes all three? I just don't really see anyone dominating like all three rounds. I see it being back and forth. These two just getting after. These two are hungry, want to make a point, want to be exciting. So... Yeah, I see this being a war. I'm going to lean a little bit towards Jordan. I haven't even given like a reason why. It's because like, I don't know why. <laughs> like, I really don't. Like, I just I just see it being exciting. See it being violent. Maybe the, the punching of Sean Woodson versus the kicking of Jordan. Both guys got opportunistic chokes. If either one wants to shoot, um, I'm going to lean a little bit more towards Jordan. You know, maybe the, the judges like his aggressiveness a little bit, but yeah. I don't really have a strong read on this fight. I just see it. Like, I see these guys fight 10 times, a different outcome every single time. And I'm open to being proven wrong, of course. Of course. If one guy is going to be so dominant that he just gets some 30-26 or something, okay, or dominates and then gets a third-round finish, that'd be pretty cool too. But most likely, I, I see it being back and forth and seeing this being a real prospect battle. Now, next up in the Bantamweight division, we got a rematch between Serhi Sidi who's 10 and one taking on Ramon Taveras, who's nine and two. Currently they got it. And uh shout out to the Ukrainian Canadian. I, I apologize if I'm messing up his name, man. 
but I'll just say his last name. We got CD. He's a minus 175, and the comeback on Ramon Taveras is plus 150. So there's a rematch, and these two fall contender series, and we know uh, CD, you know, dropped Taveras in the first round. A lot of people thought it was a very early stoppage. So that's all that anyone talks about was that it was an early stoppage, but they don't talk about what actually happened leading up to the stoppage. Firstly, that combination CD dropped Taveras with was so nasty. Like, dude, he takes a step back from the jab that Taveras throws at him. He pulls it, and then he throws a one-two down the pipe and floors him. I was like, yo, that combo was nasty. And unfortunately, it was kind of marred by the fact that, you know, people consider that to be an early stoppage. So no one talks about how beautiful that combination was that CD landed. But up until that point, it was interesting. CD was kind of playing an outside kicking game. His kicks are fucking hard, man. Oh, my God. Like to the body, to the head, to the legs. The guy can kick, man. And then Ramon Taveras, he kind of reminds me of like a southpaw Cody Garbrandt, like with a chin, <laughs> you know, even though he got dropped that fight. Like, you know, um, he fights like Cody Garbrandt, man. Big pocket boxer. He was landing some nice one-twos down the pipe. Uh, the guy can bang. One thing about Ramon Taveras, he can bang. I mean, you watch that fight he had, the last fight he had on Contender Series against Cortavius. Oh, my God, bro. Like, that was a devastating knockout. You watch his fight against Martin Day, UFC vet, nasty guillotine. He drops a lot of the guys he fights. He knocks out a lot of the guys he fights. So, honestly, this is a great fight between two prospects. It really, really is. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I know it's so easy to just reference the early stoppage and do all these things, but I got to give CD credit, man. That combination was nasty. It seemed like he was finding his range. It seemed like he ate the power shots of Ramon Taveras pretty fine. And then when it was his turn to answer, he floored Taveras. And, you know, no two fights are ever alike. So I'm not saying that it's going to just be a repeat performance, but I'm just going to say I do agree with CD being favored in the spot. I think he's the better prospect, but better prospect between two very good prospects. It's not like we're going to talk about, you know, these two bums, Malcolm Gordon and Jimmy Flick here in a little bit. But here, these two guys, CD and Taveras, I think both got very bright futures. Taveras, more violent, more of a brawler, kind of that Cody Garbrandt style before his chin got checked. And CD kind of longer on the outside. Ukrainian that moved to Canada when he was just a kid. So, you know, he grew up tough. And uh, yeah, man, I just see this being a hell of a fight. I'm going to lean with CD here, man. I think CD already showed the goods. And people are just talking, putting so much emphasis on that early stoppage that they don't give him any credit for how beautiful that combination was that floored Taveras. It was nasty. And now that he's got his timing, now that he's been in there with him, he knows he can drop him. I expect him to be even more confident. Hopefully not confident to a fall where now his hands drop. And now it's Taveras' turn to get one back on him and knock him out because Taveras absolutely has that kind of knockout power. But the thing is, I really liked CD's uh, defense in that fight. Like I know he got cracked a couple times, but his hands were up nice and high and he kind of minimized the impact of the blows. I like his how he circles on the outside. I, I think this kid's a bright prospect. So I'm very intrigued by this fight. I'm glad they put it back together. And I'm going to pick CD to defeat Taveras for a second time. And next up in the strawweight division, we got a matchup between Jillian Robertson. She's 12 and 8, taking on Pollyanna Viana, who's 13 and 6. Currently, they got it. Jillian Robertson minus 250. The comeback on Poliana Viana is plus 210. So, I mean, Eddie Alvarez told us what the deal is with Jillian Robertson since day one back on the Ultimate Fighter. 
if Jillian Robertson can't get her takedown, she breaks. That's the bottom line. Jillian Robertson will never be a striker. Jillian Robertson will never like getting hit. Jillian Robertson is never going to evolve her striking game or anything like that. It's always going to be the same thing, but she's very dangerous on the mat. You know, she is a black belt, and she submitted a tons of girls. I mean, that's why she probably holds the record for the most submissions in the strawweight history. She is that dangerous. Um, and the thing with Poliana Viana, she can be taken out. She can be submitted, as you saw in her last fight. But she's also very dangerous to off her back or on the feet, too. She, she's one of the rare occasions that one of the rare women that's landed knockouts on the feet, not just against, uh, you know, Jin Yufrey, but even on her regional scene. Uh, didn't she knock out Amanda Hivash in round one? So, like, yeah, like, Viana can crack. It's just that Jillian's probably going to be able to chain takedowns here. And when Jillian's on top... She's pretty nasty. I think she's going to be able to take down Vienna and have her way with her. It's just, like I said, if Vienna can stop these takedowns, Vienna's going to win because Jillian Robertson is as one-dimensional as it gets, and if she cannot get her takedown game going, she will break. However, I think she will get her takedown game going and probably win this fight by submission. So I'm going to go Jillian Robertson here. Now, next up in the welterweight division, we got a matchup between Johan Lainess. He's 9-2. and two. He's taking on Sam Patterson, who's 10-2. and two. Currently, they got it. Johan Lainess minus 145. The comeback on Sam Patterson is plus 125. Interesting fight because when Johan Lainess first came to the UFC and was on Contender Series, I thought that he was like one of the better Canadian prospects. The guy's big for a welterweight. He's got devastating power, and he still hasn't shown it in the UFC yet. But on his regionals, man, he was knocking guys out left and right. And he kind of reminded me, you know, for a while of like a Canadian Matt Brown. But in the UFC, what's interesting is that people only remember like that terrible fight he had with Darian Weeks or how Mike Malott just ran through him, right? But let's talk about that Gabe Green fight. Like, I know we can talk about the body shot that put Johan down, but actually that Gabe Green fight was the best Lainess has looked in the UFC. So, like, you watch the Contender Series fight against Justin Berlinson, and then you watch the Gabe Green fight. That's who Lainess is, like that guy, right? The Darian Weeks fight and the Mike Malott fight were not an accurate representation of who Lainess is. Like, Lainess is usually very violent. Lainess usually goes for it, and... Those last two fights, he's been very gun-shy. I know he changed around his training situation. You know, man, I think he had a falling out with uh, Patrick Cote, and now Lainess is training at TriStar. So you know Lainess is getting in the best looks possible. He's outside his comfort zone. He's under a few rounds of hobby. So, you know, credit to him for getting outside his comfort zone because, like I said, on the regional scene, I had high hopes for Lainess, man. He's dangerous. He's violent. He goes for it. But those last two fights in the UFC, I've seen like this gun shy guy that it was just very uncharacteristic of who I thought Lainess was. And then Sam Patterson, he's pretty good. It's just that, you know, he's he's really tall for the weight class and he's got, oh my God, he's got like some of the worst tall man's defense. You know, he's six foot three, but he stands, he is all of six foot three, you know, no bend in the knees, chin straight up in the air. And I even said that last fight against ash moves i was like bro this guy is a violent knockout waiting to happen and I, I just didn't think that ash moves was the guy to do it and this below average guy ash moves like doesn't just knock him out y'all like violently ko's and we're like patterson's trying to fight the ref afterwards and like even his corner can't calm him down like he got done dirty to the point where like hey now he's moving up to welterweight and usually these weight moves actually go well when they move up in weight and I wouldn't be surprised if Sam Patterson picked apart Johan, especially if Johan's out here kind of gun-shy like he has been his last two fights. But you give me that Johan from the Gabe Green fight, from the Justin Berlinson fight, from his regional fights, he's probably going to do something to that chin again. You know, he's probably going to put down Sam Patterson. It's just, I personally don't trust Lainess. You know, I did bet him in that um, 
Darion Weeks fight. I think it was like, what, plus 115, plus 125, something like that. A lot of people think that that was a robbery. Listen, man, there's so many more fights where I'd rather plant my flag on something being a robbery or something being bullshit than that fight. Like, that fight was just, what did you favor more? The harder shots of Ness or, you know, Darian Weeks pinning him up against the fence for, like, 13 minutes of the fight or whatever the case was. Like, it was just a terrible fight, man. Um, so it's just one of those things. I, I want to see Johan Ness get mean, get dirty, get nasty like he used to do. If he fights like he used to do, I think he's going to knock out Sam Patterson. But if Johan is kind of gun shy, you know, a, a broken man like those last two fights, and Sam Patterson's absolutely a live dog. But Johan showed me, you know, leaving Patrick Cote, getting out of his comfort zone, training with Firaz Zahavi. Hopefully that ignited some kind of fire inside him because if he's like, dude, I just want to see that that nasty, mean Johan that I was excited to see in the UFC that I haven't seen yet. Well, besides the Gabe Green fight and that fight, he got stopped midway through the second round. So, but it was looking good up until that point. Give me Johan here, but you know, I'm not laying it. I know a lot of people I respect are laying it. They're more confident than I am. I'm, I'm not confident. here. I, let you let Johan prove it to me before I, I play him at chalk. You know, if he was a dog here, I'd play him, but at chalk, you know, I just, it's probably about accurate. So let's see. Prove it to me, Johan. I'm going to pick Johan here. Now, next up in the flyweight division, we got a matchup between Jasmine Jazdavicia. She's 9 and 3, taking on Priscilla Cachoeira, who's 12 and 5. Currently, they got it. Jasmine Jazdavicia is minus 360. The comeback on Priscilla Cachoeira is plus 285. So, yeah, I like both these girls. You know, Priscilla Cachoeira, zombie girl, very nasty and will cheat to win, which is a quality that obviously, if you, if you have money against her, you don't like it. But if you have money on her, you love it. And she's got big power. Uh, for the women's weight class you know like you saw that fight she had against Ariane Lipsky she knocked out Ariane Lipsky in the first round and like if you start to show any kind of weakness against a girl like Priscilla Cachoeira you start to slow down you start to show her that you're feeling her shots I mean like I said she does have some of the rare power in that division and she can get mean in there she will cheat to win with Jasmine though Jasmine's big for the weight class Jasmine's very physical and Jasmine's relentless Jasmine Look, the striking might not look the cleanest. Just her whole style doesn't look that clean, but she goes for it. She's super relentless. I think there's an argument that she won that last fight against Cortez, but again, similar to like Lainess and Darren Weeks, it wasn't, I'm not going to, you know, plant my flag on that being some robbery. It could have gone either. It was a close fight. It was a close fight. I thought it was a good fight. Um, But I think Jasmine's been improving, man. Um, You know, she's in her prime right now. And again she calls herself the female gsb which is kind of funny but like what she means by that is she's relentless man she really goes for those takedowns and it used to really be more upper body takedowns but that fight she had against that big brazilian girl i forgot the girl's name but i bet her in that spot um what was that girl's name bro <laughs> that that chick that has zero takedown defense but can crack what was that girl's name um gabriella fernandez yeah like so going into the gabriella fernandez fight i was kind of like well Jasmine usually does these upper body takedowns. In that fight, I loved it because she was going for the legs. She was going for double legs, single legs. Like I was like, okay, perfect. Because that's what I need here against Priscilla, right? I'm not going to lay the minus 400 either. I think it's a dog or pass situation. But Because on the feet, I mean, don't count out Priscilla on the feet. It's just that when Jasmine gets on top of her, Jasmine should be able to kind of do her thing and dominate down the stretch. So I'm going to go Jasmine Jazdavicius here. Now, last but not least, oh my God, in a flyweight division, we got Malcolm Gordon. He's 14 and seven, taking on Jimmy Flick, who's 16 and seven. Currently, they got a Malcolm Gordon minus 160. The comeback on Jimmy Flick is plus 140. Friends do not let friends bet on Malcolm Gordon or Jimmy Flick in UFC fights, let alone Malcolm Gordon at chalk. 
listen, no disrespect to these guys. Let's just talk for a second because I know people are going to say this is like a regional fight. Just to put it in perspective, you know, both these guys are like black belts. Both these guys have won a fight in the UFC before via finish. It's like, it's interesting what the lowest level of the UFC is compared to like a regional scene. Because on a regional scene, not saying that some up and coming prospects wouldn't beat these guys because I absolutely believe they would, but like, this would be like a regional main event, <laughs> but it's the first fight of the prelims in the UFC card, and we all think both these guys suck, which is what's interesting about it. So when I say they suck, please don't take that the wrong way and think that I'm disrespecting someone at the UFC level. I'm not. It's just that at the, when you're talking about UFC caliber, these guys are bottom of the barrel. These guys are both fragile. These guys both have no chins. These guys are both – they're both black belts, though. They can submit each other. I'd say Malcolm probably has a little bit more power. Jimmy is a little bit – trickier on the mat but i don't trust either guy's chin i don't trust either guy's confidence i don't even want to pick this fight i don't even want to watch this fight i think like i love sean shelby and mick maynard and i get the reasoning behind this matchup it's loser leaves town we don't want these guys on the roster so whoever loses this fight you're gone but i was thinking like why don't we feed both these guys to emerging prospects that way we can guarantee they're both gone, you know? So that's what I would have liked to do. I'm not going to pick this fight. I think these guys are bums at the UFC level, fragile, untrustworthy. And if you're laying chalk on Malcolm Gordon, <laughs> God bless you. You know what I'm saying? God bless you. Now we got to talk about the fight to watch and the fighter to watch. So what is the fight to watch for UFC 297? My friends, I think the fight to watch for UFC 297 it's got to be Charles Jordan versus Sean Woodson. Listen, this fight is not on the pay-per-view. And the reason it's not on the pay-per-view is because when you have two exciting bangers like this and you put it on televised prelims, this is going to give people incentive to go buy that pay-per-view. I mean, you look at Charles Jordan. He's nasty with his kicks. He's a finisher. You start to slow down and show him any kind of weakness. He will turn up on you, man. And then you look at Sean Woodson, six foot three. He's a matchup problem in the featherweight division. He's going to stand and bang with Charles Jordan. I highly doubt either guy shoots for a takedown unless they're very hurt or compromised. So for that reason, Charles Jordan versus Sean Woodson is my fight to watch. Who is my fighter to watch? My fighter to watch is Mofsar Evloyev. Listen, he's taking on the very very tough arnold allen if you guys have been listening to half the battle you know what kind of regard i hold arnold allen very high up there i've bet him in a large amount of his fights he's very profitable to bet on so for me to bet against him with movesar you gotta understand what kind of regard i hold movesar and i think movesar could potentially be challenging the winner of Taporia versus volkanovsky for the belt at some point later this year. That's how good I think this guy is. And people just talk about his wrestling. Don't sleep on his striking. Mosar Evloev is a very well-rounded and intelligent fighter. And doesn't he have like a degree in like engineering or some shit too? Like the guy's like a genius, man. He, he speaks perfect English too. Mosar Evloev is my fighter to watch. Well, my friend, we did it. It's going down this Saturday at the Scotiabank Arena in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. All my Canadian friends. I hope you all enjoyed this card. And you know, y'all deserve it. It's been a while. So, hey, now they're coming back to Canada a bit more frequently. So I know y'all love to see it. I'm happy for y'all. Now it's time for the UFC to come back to the ATL. The last time we came was that card right there. You know what I'm saying? Holloway versus Poirier 2, Adesanya versus Gastelum, two of the best fights of all time. Now it's time for the UFC to come back to ATL and give us another hell of a card. Thank you all so much for watching this episode of Half the Battle. Please hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button if you're not already subscribed. When this is done, leave me a comment if you feel so inclined to share. I truly appreciate that too. 
I'm down to communicate with anybody that has my back on Twitter at Best Fight Picks, on Instagram at Half the Battle Pod. I truly, truly, sincerely appreciate you guys. Thanks for all the support and love. And until the next time, let's cash these bets.